I've always believed that businesses have more power than they actually use. They have more power to impact, not just the company. I'm not talking about the company. I'm talking about power to actually influence the locations and communities in which they operate, in which their employees live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. What does it mean to be unapologetically ambitious? Our guest today is someone who exemplifies exactly that. Shelly Archambault has had a career of many firsts. She was the first black female to lead an international division of IBM. She became one of the first black female tech CEOs as she led MetricStream. Now, she serves on the board of Verizon, Nordstrom, Okta, and as an advisor to RBC Capital Markets and Forbes Ignite. Shelly has never ceased to strive for the next milestone or the next opportunity to make a meaningful impact. When the news broke about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others who tragically lost their lives at the hands of police violence, Shelly knew she had to do something. She didn't need anyone's permission to assemble a broad coalition of CEOs, local leaders, and Forbes Ignite to help find lasting solutions to these endemic challenges. Nor do you need anyone's permission to reach out and change the world that you live in. I truly believe this conversation showcases what it means to be a true leader. Here's our chat. Thank you so much, Shelly, for joining today. And we've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yes, I have too, Nicole. Thank you. With you leading our initiative on correcting racial injustice, we're just getting started here. And we've been really excited about the work we've been doing together and what's ahead for us. So I know we both have tons and tons to cover, but um, I'd love to start off with how have you been finding the experience so far and what has been your hope of this initiative? Certainly. So, you know, when everything really started coming to a head around racial injustice with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and just everything that went on, I asked myself, okay, so what am I going to do about this? And so I decided, okay, I want to work on a impactful area and frankly demonstrate that business can actually use their power for change. So as I look at it, um, when Forbes Ignite came to me to say, hey, we'd like to partner right on something, it was just perfect alignment of interests. So what am I hopeful for? I'm hopeful that as a result of our work, we will be able to improve the relationships between police and the communities that they serve. I am hopeful that we will be able to reduce the harassment that so many Black men and people of color experience every day. I am hopeful that we will be able to impact positively some of the dialogue and approaches that are used in our overall justice system. So I actually have a a lot of hopes and aspirations for all of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I think you're the best person and the most qualified among all of us to speak about how can we really apply the pressure on the business community to make an impact of their own, because we're all trying to do this in our own 
with our own skill sets, with our own capabilities and capacity. But when there's that willingness and when we have that mutual alignment, we can make a lot of things happen. And I'm really excited to be doing this together with you. There's something that I've been really looking forward to speaking with you about, and it's what we've talked about in our previous conversations very lightly about social malpractice. And I know that the person we interviewed, Desmond Mead, actually coined this term. So I'd love to know your thoughts around this and how this is really fitting in to the initiative that we're working on together. Yes, I, I thought that just summed it up so well, social malpractice. You know, that's the idea that we are basically providing what we think is the solution or the fix to a lot of the issues without actually asking and engaging the people who are actually suffering from the challenges. You know, just to paraphrase um, in Desmond in terms of on the overall statement, he's like, imagine, imagine you're not feeling well mm-hmm. and you decide to go to the doctors, right? And you walk into the doctor's office and before he even asks you your name or how you're doing, he pulls out a hypodermic needle and sticks it in your arm. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, 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 you don't even know what's wrong with me. And he's like, well, yeah, I do. I know what's wrong in general, right? And this is what usually solves the problem or should solve the problem in general. And it's like, no, 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 no. We cannot do that to our communities. So we need to make sure that we are actually not only listening, but engaging our communities to help find the right solutions. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I 100% agree because when we're listening to our communities and we rely on community-based um, points of intervention, we can find alternatives to one of the most talked about points here, specifically on eliminating cash bail. And the reason why we're talking about that is because we're trying to find incentives for decarceration. And with um, the work of Christina Hollenbach, who you and I both know, she's done a ton of work around just uncovering these systems of systems with this huge proverbial knotted mess. So when we're, she's actually figured out the string to pull on if we're trying to remove or start to untangle this mess, which is removing cash bail. So I'd love to know your thoughts around that. Yes. So even I, frankly, was appalled and surprised by some of the learnings that we've had as a result of the research into the bail process. You know, it turns out we have a lot of people sitting in jail, not because they've actually done anything wrong, but because they just didn't have the $500, the $1,000, the $1,200 to pay bail. So therefore they're stuck. And not only are they stuck, but it ruins their entire lives. I mean, the average Afri- just as an example, the average African-American woman, the average black woman has a net worth of $200, which is appalling, but true. I just heard that from JP Morgan Chase. And I went, oh my God. So imagine you get a $500 bail bill because you were late on registering your car because you didn't have the money and suddenly you are in jail. So we are basically incarcerating the poor. Yeah. So we have basically criminalized poverty, which is ridiculous. And I think, I think most people aren't even aware that that's actually what's happening here. So if we can figure out how to undo this bail system, we'd see a significant reduction in the number of people that end up in jail. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And your ability to pay shouldn't dictate your future. 
and unbeknownst to the general population that criminals are actually made while they're incarcerated rather than beforehand. And so that's just one of the many, many reasons why there should be alternatives to cash bail. And there are a lot of really great community-based intervention programs, but they're not scaling in a way that they need to happen. And so that's what we're trying to do uh, together with our work and with Forbes Ignite. What we need to do is scale this to have even more impact. Absolutely. And maybe, and maybe it makes sense, Nicole, just for our, our listeners, in case people are new to Forbes Ignite. Um, but it's important to understand that what Forbes Ignite is trying to do broadly, and then what we're bringing to bear on this particular issue, is to do the research, real research, um, both the first-person research, uh, secondary research, right, et cetera, to understand the issues, and then bring the right people together from around the country, if not around the world, to be able to develop innovative solutions that can be deployed at scale. Yes. Because you're right, there are a lot of good programs, there are a lot of good nonprofits, amazing people out there that are really trying to chip away at this, uh, but they don't have the resources, the reach, and or frankly, the kind of megaphone that Forbes can bring uh, to actually be able to scale this. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to partner and become an advisor with Forbes Ignite was because I believe this is a way to really bring some leverage to the to some good work that's already happening out there. Yeah. There's a lot of people with really great intentions. And it's just in- unfortunate that, like you said, they don't have the megaphone. And more importantly, the right people are not giving the megaphone to others that need it more. And so that's what we're in the business of doing. We're in the business of amplifying the right voices that need to be heard to make the right change, to make the greater impact that needs to happen. And um, that takes me to um, talking about what we consider the families of choice. When we're talking about those who have had their families taken from them, especially when they have been incarcerated, um, they've been forced to choose their, their families and to have that mutual support system, specifically before or after they are returning citizens after being incarcerated. So I'd love to know what you think about that. Yes, you know, when a big... One of the big challenges is people who have now served their time um, come out. And as a country, we say, okay, you, you do a crime, you serve your time. And unfortunately, even those that haven't done a crime serve their time, right. but they serve their time. And then when they come out, instead of being able to go back to life as a full citizen mm-hmm. of this country, they aren't. They suddenly have no support system. Most when they say, once they end up incarcerated, they lose family connections, they lose societal and um, community connections, and then they come out with no money, no job experience, a big red badge right on their shoulder that says they're an ex-con. Right. And we wonder why they struggle and why the recidivism rate is so high. And it's because what do we expect? Companies won't give them jobs. Families rarely want anything to do with them if they even came from a strong family, right, to begin with. So we need to help figure out a support structure that enables these these people to cope with, frankly, the trauma, the trauma of jail, the trauma of coming into a world that is very different from the world you left. It's almost like being in a time machine, if you think about it. And one of the reasons that this is so important is because we need, as a country, we need these people to come out and to be successful. Yes. It is not only expensive, 
from a dollar standpoint where our tax dollars go. But frankly, it's expensive in terms of the impact that they have on society by not supporting them, then bottom line is they're pulling it down. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that we are actually giving them structure, giving them an alternative family support, if you will. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And what a lot of people don't realize, we're thinking about it, yes, from a human-centered point of view, but also where does this trauma come from and how does it even happen to begin with? A lot of these points of trauma come from just misaligned incentives, especially from the police force itself. And when we talk about how the police are measured in the wrong way, we're also creating more problems when when you have incentives that are misaligned, that bend your thinking this way. And we talk about police culture. We talk about um, toxic behavior. And that toxic behavior spreads like a virus from one precinct to the next. And there aren't systems in place where one police officer that has been um, corrected from misbehavior, there isn't a a way to track any of that. And so that behavior just persists. So I'd love to know what you think about that. Yes. You know, I I think it's important to start by just putting it in context. The vast majority of police are actually good police officers. They are absolutely trying to do their job. They are trying to serve citizens, right? They come to work every day and they put themselves at risk right, for on, on behalf of everyone else and the good of everyone else. So I just want to acknowledge that the majority, vast majority of police officers, right, are actually coming at this from a good place. The challenge, as you said, is when you have a few bad actors. Yes. It then permeates and, frankly, stains, right, the, the, whole, the whole group. And frankly, I don't think any of them want these bad actors, but at the same time, because there is such a, a culture of we have to protect our own within the police force, um, and no one knows the full experience and what they deal with and all of them than they do, it creates this very strong for, you know, fraternal type of structure and, and passion so that people end up protecting even the police officers aren't, that aren't acting right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it reminds me, we've lived through these scenarios, whether issues with, um, you know, child abuse in the churches, whether it's, you know, bad teachers in schools, whether it is, I mean, ev- unfortunately, people are people. And every organization, companies, etc., all end up experiencing some bad actors. The difference is in those organizations and, and structures, it's easier to actually expel, right, those types of folks than it is in others. And right now, in the way the police um, structure is set up and in the way the, the code of conduct, right, um, informal is set up, it's hard. It's hard to actually do what needs to be done. So we have to figure out how we change incentives. Mm-hmm and how we put things in place that actually make it easier for bad actors to be dealt with. Because frankly, I think all police, I think police chief, I think everybody wants good actors on their teams. Yeah, we definitely believe that. And we've been fortunate to be working together with Andre McGregor, and he's been talking with us about his work at Force Metrics. And so 
he's an individual that's seen both sides of the story, actually having served on the force and actually being on the other side where he's trying to rethink how can we build these structures where the police are able to give information to entities that they trust so that we can provide not just more transparency to citizens, but um, for more organizations that are trying to take both the psychometrics and also the police force metrics to create more um, actionable solutions. Yeah, listen, I'm very encouraged by a number of both uh, technologies that we've been uncovering as part of our work, as well as the passion that exists by people like Andre McGregor, um, you know, even David Thomas. I mean, a number of people that we have talked to, Dr. Brian Marks, um, Christina. There is such good work going out there. And that's what has me excited is that we can actually use this platform and this initiative to pull these things together to really make a broader impact. Yeah, we're all about bringing all these brilliant minds together to create not just more impactful efficiency, but more results and also work within modern organizational management being applied as well, because we're thinking of these things as just the other. They, like you said, there are some bad actors, but it's less easy to expel these bad actors because of these systems that have just always been there. And when we think about it from an organizational management standpoint, you would never see that happen within a Fortune 500 company. Something would happen. There would be forces that would help correct this misbehavior at at the very least, but these behaviors have been persisting because of those structures that have inadvertently been in place for so long. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So I'd love to hear from your point of view, what you consider really great examples that are out there that you would think um, would be great partners for us to to be speaking with just in general. Oh, you know, um, so first of all, I, I feel very good about the extent of our outreach. And I've connected us to so many yes. um, in terms of people. So we are tapping people, everything from folks who have been involved in government, right? And government structures and driven change, um, like Commissioner Rodney Ellis, as an example, out of Houston, mm-hmm. who has been an advocate of correcting social injustice, right, for a very long time. So everything from government to people who have been police officers or have been actually the recipients, unfortunately, of police harassment and abuse, like a David Thomas, who is a professor at the University of Florida, right? So government, education, and then in business, we're tapping all the people that we've been talking about who are actually doing good work and really trying to understand what's, what's happening here. So part of the reason why it's important now that we've gotten the first phase of our work done, which is the research, and we've identified the areas in which we want to focus, which we've been highlighting. You know, number one, we want to make sure that we really understand um, how we can create a system of data collection and analysis, right? That the police trust, everybody trusts to help us understand what's really happening and point these solutions in the right place. Um, Focusing on how we can create, as you said, incentives for decarceration versus incarceration, right? Um, And then, you know, thirdly, this whole notion of providing a system of both mutual support 
for people who actually come out of prison and want to be entering back into community as a citizen. So when you look at that, being we, one of the reasons we want to share what we're doing now is people who are engaged in these areas, mm -hmm. who are currently doing innovative approaches, whether it's through technology or through process or through nonprofits, et cetera, um, to reach out so that we can pull in the best minds and the best thinking to come up with solutions here, because this is hard stuff, right? If it wasn't hard, it would already be solved. Exactly. So we know, right. So we know it's hard. And now it's a matter of how we pull all that we can to bear to really make an impact here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's one final question that I have for you. And um, like I said, you're probably the most qualified among all of us to speak about this. And when we're talking about applying that pressure to the business community, for those who don't even know where to start, for those who just need that simple 101 of, of where they can start, who they can reach out to, what they should do, what would, your, what would be your advice to them? Ah, so if, if I'm an organization, the community in which I have a majority of my employees, start, so start there. And when I say start there, meaning meet with the mayor, meet with the city council, understand what, what are the issues and what are they doing about it? As a business in that community, you pay a lot of their taxes. Yes. That's what I say. You have more power than you think. And you can pull together other business owners and you go in together. You have then even more power. And as a citizen, as a corporate citizen, ask for the data, ask for the information, right? What is happening in our community? How many, what is, what, what, you know, I'm focused on harassment. So my kind of questions would be is, I'd love to see the statistics. Can you show me who the, what the profile is of the people that have been arrested, the people that get pulled over, who gets dropping tickets? I mean, there's, just start asking the questions. This is our data because it's our community. Um, and then ask how you can help, which is the other thing. You know, governments, governments are put in place to serve us as the citizens, but we have to help them serve us. So creating the dialogue, creating the, the pathways and the bridges between business and government will absolutely strengthen the impact that can be had and that can be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I thought, I, I thought that was my last question for you, but my very, very last question for you would yeah. ask. <laughs> would absolutely be, what are these non-obvious areas of opportunity that you've been surprised to find uh, based on our research and how our initiative is shaping out to be right now? What has surprised you the most? Oh, I guess what has surprised me is learning, just learning more about how things actually work mm -hmm. um, across the, I'll call it across the system. Mm -hmm. Everything from, you know, how, how police are measured, how people actually see the police, you know, on, on both sides, how different it is community to community to community, um, and how many people out there, I guess what surprised me is the number of people out there that are actually trying to make an impact and fix this in their own individual ways. And that's what gives me optimism, because if we can just figure out how to harness and leverage that, mm -hmm. right, 
then wow, we should absolutely be able to bring some innovative solutions that can scale. Yeah. And what gives me the most optimism, um, apart from working with you directly on this, is the fact that we can not just leverage all the brilliant minds that are out there, but we can actually can be the facilitators and the connectors of all these initiatives that are happening. We this has been a long persisting problem and we're not the first people to think about it. However, we're trying to do things in new and more innovative, innovative ways so that we are not trying to get the same results that have always been happening before. We're trying to do something new here. And for people who are dedicated and committed to just trying something new, taking that first step and seeing how they can help, that's all that it takes in order to make just one slight difference. And the cumulative effect is just the sky's the limit. So Shelly, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. And we've had, um, there's so much more that we could say about this. And I, I could talk all day about this. It's been such a pleasure um, speaking with you about this. And I look forward to continuing our work together. Absolutely, Nicole. And I look forward not only to continuing the work, but frankly, being able to put some wins on the board to see what kind of impact can we make beginning one community at a time. One community at a time, absolutely. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.